From the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, this is Audiophiles. I'm your host, Amanda Carey McHugh. Today on Audiophiles, we learn about New Yorkers using food to shed light on a serious cause. So as you enjoy our culture, as you enjoy the delicious Momo, when you go home tonight, please think about the children who are inside Tibet. Then we talk to a reporter from the city to learn how climate change is affecting New Yorkers. Wildfire smoke events, uh, like the one we saw this summer, the administration would need to alert New Yorkers ahead of time. And we meet a karaoke enthusiast who says the activity saved his life. Why could I ever want to give up on life when I have something like this? Like it not only fulfilled me, but it also fulfilled all these people around me. All that and more here on Audiophiles. There's no question that New York is noisy, and some lawmakers want to change that. The New York City Council is considering new legislation that would make it easier to issue noise complaints. Reporter Rachel Goldman attended a council hearing on the matter and found that not all New Yorkers are on board. New York City may be getting a little quieter soon. At least, that's what Councilman Keith Powers hopes to achieve. The Upper East Side lawmaker is co-sponsoring a package of bills meant to reduce noise in the city. We all know New York is a city that never sleeps, but between noisy helicopters, constant construction, and loud cars, I think we all can agree it's time for some quiet. Powers says he's tackling noise issues, like increasing the accessibility of noise complaint investigations, requiring construction sites to measure their noise levels within a half-mile radius of aggrieved tenants, the installation of noise cameras, and limiting the abilities for construction to work within unreasonable noise hours. If that sounds like a lot of measures to reduce noise, it is. But they're warranted, says Councilman Powers. We have seen citywide the amount of complaints go up, enforcement go down. The noise problem in New York City has been forever. We all know this. That's Councilman Robert Holden, who represents Maspeth, Queens. He wants to expand and clarify the definition of unreasonable noise. With my bill, we're looking to take action to deal with this issue seriously. We're setting clear noise standards. The current enforcement standards haven't been working for everyone. Caitlin Mooney is the general manager of The Independent, a restaurant in Times Square. She supports noise regulation, but she's facing a different problem with the complaints. It started over a year ago with a complaint saying that we were above noise level at 7 p.m. in Times Square. Under current New York City law, when people report noise complaints on businesses, they can collect anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of the fines if their complaint goes through. I thought it was a scam. I didn't think it was true. I was about to rip it up and throw it away. One of the new bills being considered at this hearing would cap the financial compensation complainers can receive down to $10 or less. People like Brooklyn resident Dan Martin are sympathetic that the current system of citizen reporting could be easily exploited. Interesting. Um, Well, that doesn't make any sense. Martin says he does think something needs to change with the noise. He says he's had a hard time reporting noise complaints over the years. The cement trucks that will line up in front of my building at 4 o'clock in the morning and just roll the cement over and over and over again. Dial 311. They tell you it takes 10 days to turn around whatever report. And by that time, what, what good is it? It seems that lawmakers have heard these concerns before. One of the bills would provide access to noise inspection reports following these 311 complaints. This is Rachel Goldman reporting for Audiophiles.
Momo Crawl is a food festival that happens every fall in Jackson Heights, Queens. Momos are steamed dumplings that can be found in Nepali and Tibetan cuisines. The event itself is a simple affair. You try $1 momos from participating restaurants and then vote for the best one at the end. But momo crawl is more than just a fun way to enjoy cheap eats. It's also one way people can support the free Tibet movement. Reporter Sajina Saresta attended momo crawl this year. The rain did not stop this year's momo crawl. People came in droves to try these savory Himalayan dumplings from different food trucks and restaurants. Jackson Heights, Queens was packed. The event itself had signs of Tibetan culture persevering everywhere, from the little Tibetan flags sewn onto the organizers' backpacks to the traditional cultural dance during the event. The filling looks nice and juicy. It's a good moment. Chandra Manna came all the way from White Plains. She didn't mind waiting in the long line to try out the food truck Amdo Momo's dumplings. The skin is actually really nice. And the filling, it's a soft skin, it's not too thick, and the filling's tasty. I'm all for it. Momo Crawl is put on by Students for Free Tibet, a grassroots organization also known as SFT. Lopsang Setan is one of the program managers at SFT. This year, we have 34 restaurants have registered for Momo Crawl. We sold 1,600 tickets online, and we are expected to sell another 1,500 in person. So every year, it's just growing up, and, and hopefully, this year, it's 11th Momo Crawl. Hopefully, another year, next year, 12th Momo Crawl, it will be much bigger than this. For attendees Maurice Krudup and Grace Breslin, the fun did not just come from enjoying cheap momos. It also came from supporting a movement. Supporting a good cause and having some good food while you're just on the move. That's just my personal favorite part of it. Definitely like the food, um, supporting free Tibet, and just kind of seeing like everyone in the community. What Breslin is talking about is the free Tibet movement. It's part of something much larger called the Tibetan independence movement. Ever since China took control of the country in 1950, there have been long-standing actions advocating for Tibet's independence. SFT works for Tibetan freedom with activists and students all around the world. Their campaign director, Chemi Lamo, says Momokral acts as another form of resistance. We are not doing this as a food company that's celebrating just food. We are a human rights organization driven by young people who are working towards the freedom of Tibet. There are two current issues that Lamo is working on. First is protesting against Thermo Fisher, an American company that has been selling DNA extraction kits to China. We are out there advocating in the UN. We're here in D.C. talking about it to congressmen and women. Emil Dirks is an associate researcher at the University of Toronto. According to his report, approximately a fourth to one-third of Tibetans have already had their DNA extracted. He says that although the police bureaus in China said that they were collecting DNA to help with missing persons and crime cases, the bureau's report itself tells a different story. And what was quite clear in, uh, from looking at these reports was that the individuals who the police were targeting uh, were not criminal suspects. They did not seem to be the relatives of people who were suspected of criminal offenses, uh, nor were they missing people. Um, in fact, the DNA collections seem to be being conducted outside of any kind of ongoing casework. 
Dirk's research focus is on Chinese surveillance and policing as a whole. He says DNA collecting sends a message to those being surveilled. Programs like this serve a function of warning the public that whatever they do, they're being monitored by the state um, and that the state has the capacity to intrude upon into their private lives and to discipline them if, if need be. The second issue SFT is fighting against is the use and enforcement of colonial boarding schools in Tibet. One million Tibetan children are in boarding school today. That's Dr. Gallo speaking at the Geneva summit in 2023. Like a gardener ripping out the tree from the ground. The CCP is trying to completely cut off Tibetan children from their cultural roots in order to eradicate us forever. Gyal Lo is a sociologist who traveled to more than 50 different boarding schools all across eastern Tibet. When he talked to the students, principals, and the local people there, he found that a lot of them had very similar experiences. Students are forced to speak in Mandarin. Teacher can only use the CCP-approved textbook. When those four and five eight years old children got home, they have almost nothing in common with their parents. Nothing to talk about, almost like they were raised in a foreign country. Back at Momo Crawl, attendees have just put in their vote for the best Momo. As they wait in anticipation for the winner announcement, Lamo addresses the crowd. We welcome you to enjoy our delicious Momo. We welcome you to join our circle dance. We welcome you to be part of our community. So as you enjoy our culture, as you enjoy the delicious Momo, when you go home tonight, please think about the children who are inside Tibet, who are denied the ability to embrace this very beautiful culture and community that you witnessed here today. Later, a Tibetan restaurant, Om Wok, is announced the winner. People walk to the restaurant and cheer as the owner gives his winning speech in Tibetan. After that, the crowd disperses and everyone goes home, except for SFT. They move on. On to the next protest, the next action camp, the next petition drive, whatever it might be. The Free Tibet movement lives on beyond Momocrawl. For audio files, I'm Sajina Shrestha. You're listening to Audio Files from the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. Now, we go to Manhattan's Chinatown and meet Jan Lee. He's a third-generation resident and organizer with a community group, Neighbors United Below Canal. For years, his group has been trying to stop the construction of what would be the world's tallest jail in this historic neighborhood. He spoke with Audiophiles reporter Alex Crails recently in Columbus Park. We are a living, thriving community. And so as a community here, we have witnessed all of the degradation of Chinatown. This piece of land that has been the site of jails since 1838, and every time the jails have been built here, they've been building them bigger 
never smaller. You can't continue to, to enlarge this carceral footprint. The Chinatown jail, over 300 feet tall, because they wanted to put in mental health facilities, dental facilities, job training, post-incarceration programming, all of which could be done outside of a jail. The message to the future of young black and brown men is that the city's not willing to spend money on those things in your neighborhood, but they're willing to spend billions of dollars inside of prisons and jails. We want to raise the flag here and say, you can't do this a fifth time. We're well within our rights to say, you need a better plan. We first want to acknowledge the fact that Rikers Island is an aberration and it is an offense to humanity. What we're saying is you can't sacrifice one community for the sake of Rikers Island improvement. We've been the recipient of building of jails because them since 1838. Very differently from other parts of the East Coast of the United States, we live among a federal jail and two city jails. We live in the largest carceral footprint on the East Coast, meaning that every single court is represented here from family court to housing court, criminal court, Supreme Court, all the courts, even traffic court. We live among police every day of our lives. We are constantly surveilled as a community because of our heavy police presence. So when we say enough is enough, we mean enough is enough. was reported by Alex Krails for Audiophiles. Three bills proposed by Councilmember Lincoln Ressler aim to tackle recent climate events that have been happening in New York City. The wildfire smoke in the summer and the recent floods show city officials aren't prepared for these patterns of climate catastrophes. And it doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon. Joining me to talk about this is Samantha Maldonado, a reporter for the nonprofit newsroom, The City. She's been reporting on Councilmember Rustler's bills and the ways that climate change is impacting New Yorkers and what they can do about it. Sam, thanks for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me. So your article, How to Prep New York City for the Next Smoke Apocalypse, talks about three bills that Councilmember Lincoln Rustler proposed— They address issues related to climate change, specifically indoor air quality and air quality in general with the city, and how to prepare the city. Could you please explain what these bills do? Sure. So Lincoln Ressler, who's a council member from Brooklyn, just proposed a package of legislation that would essentially compel the city to address wildfire smoke events uh, like the one we saw this summer. The administration would need to alert New Yorkers ahead of time. They would also have to use multiple channels to communicate those alerts. And they would have to have a plan in place in order to keep New Yorkers safe. And so that plan could include a lot of things, people who are homeless. From what I understand, often they're caught in a lurch. They're not necessarily being given the proper outreach, although the administration has done outreach and so have other nonprofits. Um, Sometimes, you know, they're they have their stuff and they don't have a place to go necessarily or they don't want to go to shelters for many reasons. What Ressler suggested was doing outreach to homeless New Yorkers, getting into shelters, an easier process. 
Uh, also doing Spare the Air Days, which basically encourages New Yorkers not to drive or do other sorts of activities that cause more air pollution, which can exacerbate, uh, you know, harmful pollutants in the air. What have the problems been in the past, for example, recently with the flooding? I think the lack of leadership or the lack of uh, communication and information is really what was the issue. This is a pattern that we're seeing where there's a delayed response from the administration in terms of communicating out to the public uh, in both the wildfire smoke event that happened in June and then the most recent flooding, severe flooding in September. Uh, we did not see the mayor come out in front of the public until well into the storms or well into the smoke event. And there were air quality alerts that went out. And there were flood alerts advisories that went out as well. But the the question is, you know, how many New Yorkers are actually getting that information? Uh, Notify NYC has about one million people subscribed, but there's, you know, more than eight million in the city. So that's not a very high percentage. And we're just seeing some uh, unclear information about what people should do. You know, obviously in the June smoke event, people saw the smoke and they were like, what is this? What is happening? And didn't really get information from official sources until much later into the day. And and that was also true with flooding. People had already gone to work in school during this kind of downpour event. Um, and there were travel advisories. And so it didn't really make sense for parents who had sent their kids to school to say, OK, well, there's a travel advisory. How do we get our kids out of school now? And, you know, I think the lack of leadership or the lack of communication and information is really what was the issue. So in lieu of having an infrastructure that is protecting people, how can New Yorkers protect themselves from disasters like these? You know, how can they help themselves, essentially? Sure. So how people can help themselves really depends on where they live, what kind of resources they have, and what kind of event they they are facing. Uh, so for flooding, for instance, it's it's really imperative to just know, are you in a flood zone? Are you in a flood zone that is at risk of storm surge, which comes from the ocean, or sea level rise and high tides, which will just happen when there's a full moon and the tides are high? Or are you at risk of flooding from a lot of rain, which happens in a lot of low-lying inland areas? And so knowing that will help you figure out how to protect yourself from then. Can you buy flood insurance? Can you put up sandbags or inflatable flood barriers to prevent the water from getting in your house? Can you elevate, you know, some of your important belongings or your electric systems, things like that? For smoke, it's really a question of, you know, is the area that you're staying in, so inside your house, is that safe? Can you keep it, can you keep the air clean and at a high quality? Um, and there's things that you can do for that. For example, if you have an HVAC system, making sure that your filter is uh, of high quality and it's new and you can be running it. Um, if you don't have an HVAC system, you can create a filter yourself. Uh, there's lots of DIY ways to do that that are out there. Uh, keeping your windows closed, staying inside, things like that. Other than wildfire smoke and flooding, what other climate change issues should we be on the lookout as New Yorkers? Well, extreme heat is the deadliest form of climate impacts that we see in New York City, actually across the U.S. It's an effect that really hits different populations very differently. So over 300 people die from heat-related effects every single year in New York City. And uh, so if you're in an area with a lot less trees or where people don't have air conditioners to keep themselves cool, they have higher risk of heat stroke and other heat-related health impacts than others. And so this is something that the city is looking at in terms of adaptation. How can we absorb heat more? How can we make sure that people have the equipment that they need to stay cool? Sam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you.
Samantha Maldonado is a reporter for The City who has been reporting on ways that climate change is impacting New Yorkers and what they can do about it. Despite ongoing SAG-AFTRA strikes, Barbies, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Marvel superheroes ascended onto the Javits Center for this year's New York Comic Con. The event is where thousands of attendees geek out in all things comics and pop culture. But it's also a runway for devoted cosplayers to strut their stuff. Reporter Kimberly Izar stopped by the convention this year and kept her eyes peeled for the most fashionable designs. Got no hair, we got hair for ya! Spiky hair crowns from Dragon Ball Z and vampire teeth implants. These are just some of the props at this year's New York Comic Con. My partner and I are here on day three of the city's big annual cosplay convention as Clark Kent and Lois Lane. And I'm asking some of the best dressed folks here about their looks. So who are you dressed up as today? The May Queen from Midsummer. Let's see, I have a four-pronged crown and it's covered in flowers. I have a capelet that is also covered in flowers. All different kinds of flowers, all different colors. Yeah. I'm dressing up as Blackbeard from One Piece. Uh, I'm Tanjiro, though, Demon Slayer. And I'm Yamato. Oh, I'm from Jersey. Yeah. Same. I love the, the Demon Slayer pants because just the way that they're in, like, I'm a dancer, so I feel like if I ever needed to do anything, like, I could just, I could just bust out, like, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. If somebody opens up a circle, I'm jumping in there. I am dressed up as Poison Ivy. <laughs> so I have a long red wig on that comes down basically to my butt. The skin is green, face is green, everything's green. I got paint everywhere. Uh, my name is Brendan, and I traveled here just from Brooklyn. I am Blanky from The Brave Little Toaster. Well, I have a beautifully fit, stunning couture, uh, two curtains sewed together, yellow blanket costume over yellow clothes, and then I have a giant poster board size box for a head uh, with a dial in it and the little blanket face, and I have little arms that I can wave around. Amazing. Yeah. Can you tell me your favorite part about the outfit? I think really seeing people's reactions to it. This is a really nostalgic movie for me and a lot of people, and so it's really exciting to see people light up and think about a movie they haven't thought about in 20 years. So, Grayson is the Mandalorian, Kara is, is Grogu, aka Baby Yoda, Sharon is Fennec Shand, and I am Boba Fett. He's even got a little jetpack in the back over there, he's ready to fly out. My name is Crystal and I'm from the Bronx, New York. So, my outfit is Bayonetta, I'm from Platinum Games. We got some latex here, We've, it's really, really heavy. I've got chains everywhere, chains in my hair. Um, <laughs> I wish I added more chains, actually. Right? So I cannot walk, but here we are. <laughs> that piece was reported by Kimberly Izar for Audiophiles. It's cold season, and there's a new COVID vaccine which targets a new Omicron subvariant which can help lessen the serious effects of COVID symptoms once contracted. However, there are many New Yorkers who are still dealing with the effects of prior strains of COVID, who have symptoms that are lasting weeks, months, or even years after infection. Sarah Luft is a health reporter and graduate of the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism, where she focused her engagement reporting on those suffering from long COVID. She collaborated with the nonprofit newsroom, The City, to create a comprehensive guide for those with long COVID to help them get help for themselves. Sarah, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, Amanda. Uh, thanks for having me. 
So for those who don't know, how prevalent is long COVID? And could you please give us an overview of what long COVID can look like for some? Um, Sure thing. Um, So long COVID refers to health problems that follow a COVID infection. Um, So for some, this can look like symptoms, say headaches or fatigue, um, that don't seem to be going away a month after their infection. Uh, For others, it can look like new health issues that pop up um, days or weeks um, after they seem to have recovered from their initial COVID infection. So it could look like new anxiety and depression symptoms, um, shortness of breath, brain fog, joint pain, um, gastrointestinal issues. And in terms of how common this is, um, per the CDC data uh, right now, the number of New Yorkers currently experiencing health problems after a COVID infection is is hovering around 1 in 10. So are people still missing some taste and smell? Are we still seeing that issue for for people of long COVID? Yeah. um, So there are more than 200 plus documented symptoms of long COVID and the symptoms and severity of those symptoms can really vary from person to person. Um, And long-lasting change to taste and smell is one of them. And so in my reporting, I've come across um, people who have regained those senses. Um, People have regained part of their smell, right, but it's it's not back fully. Um, And other folks who are still having trouble with with taste and smell um, months or or even years after their initial infection, which was, of course, really tough. So it sounds like these symptoms impact people at, at various degrees, Could this impact them economically as well? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, And for some folks, the financial implications uh, are really dire. Um, So studies show that between 25 and and 65% of people with long COVID have had their work impacted, um, meaning they're working reduced hours or they've had to stop working altogether. Um, You know, so someone living with long COVID may have some mild lingering symptoms, um, but for some people, it's debilitating. Um, So meaning they're unable to live daily life as they had before infection, Um, right? So unable to work, unable to care for their children. Um, In my reporting, I've talked with parents who uh, now have trouble bringing their child to a local playground and what used to be a simple activity for them. Uh, because they can no longer chase after their child, right, if they were to run across the street. Um, And so nationwide, as many as 4 million Americans are out of work with long COVID. Uh, So there's a really huge personal financial impact um, and also a larger economic level impact, too. You mentioned children. And, you know, we do talk about how this impacts adults a lot, but how might this be impacting kids as well? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so children can experience long COVID. And it is not just adults. Um, and a review of several studies, um, we're talking between one in five and, and one in six kids experience uh, lingering symptoms after a COVID infection. Um, and just something to note that's challenging with a, with a pediatric population, it can be harder to identify long COVID. And the doctors that I've spoken with have pointed out that uh, kids don't always have the language. Um, to name their symptoms in, in clinical terms. Um, so it might be that in children, um, new brain fog manifests in worsening school performance or, or there's a new inability to kind of regulate emotions. Um, and so it's really important um, to listen uh, to kids well. Now, you wrote an article for the newsroom, The City, showing how long COVID disproportionately affects Latinos and residents in the Bronx. 
What's the latest on who this is impacting on a broader scale? Yeah, um, great question. Thank you, Amanda. Um, So per the CDC's data, um, women, transgender and bisexual people, people with disabilities, um, and people with lower incomes are more likely to experience long COVID. A couple other things to note, um, adults ages 35 to 49 are the most likely age group to experience long COVID, um, and rates vary by race. Uh, So Hispanic adults are more likely than Asian, Black, and white adults to experience long COVID also. Um, And there's there's a lot of factors at at play here in terms of what's causing these disparities, um, but they're likely exacerbated by longstanding health inequities. Uh, And I I also want to reiterate that anyone can get long COVID, um, even from a a mild COVID infection. The infection doesn't have to be severe, um, regardless of, of age or gender or current health. So real quick, is there anything someone can do if they contract COVID to prevent long COVID? Um, Yeah, one, uh, so um, reinfection can increase the the risk of of long COVID. So, um, you know, masking in in really crowded public spaces um, or or in public spaces is a great way to avoid, you know, infection in the the first place. but rest is really, really important, and there's been some studies uh, or research linking kind of lack of rest with, with long COVID, and so I would um, certainly urge people um, to rest if they are sick. Sarah, thanks so much for coming to speak with us on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Um, pleasure to talk. Sarah Luft is a health reporter and alum of the Engagement Journalism Program of the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. You can follow her work on Twitter and Instagram at at Sarah A. Luft, that's S-A-R-A-H-A-L-U-F-T. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it, unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Jewish artist DJ Haya Berman-Peters is preparing for her next installment of Klesztronica. It's an event she created combining traditional Jewish music with rave culture. Audiophiles reporter Rachel Goldman spoke to Berman-Peters and other performers about the traditional Jewish music they are breathing new life into. Last year, after the New York Yiddish Festival, Chaya Berman-Peters invited attendees to an after-party at Transpecos along the Bushwick-Ridgewood border, the first iteration of a rave that since then occurs every few months around different neighborhoods in the city. She calls it... Klestronica. Klestronica is a rave series combining techno music with Yiddish and klezmer samples. Klezmer music combines Jewish folk traditions with Eastern European and Middle Eastern origins. It sounds like this. It's all electronic dance music, so that's the first thing you'll notice when you walk in. That's Chaya Berman-Peters, the creator of Klesztronica. You'll see chair dancing and bottle dancing and traditional Jewish circle dancing, as well as your normal sort of rave moshing. It's a primarily Jewish space, but there are people of all identities there. 
and it's a very welcoming and kind space. So if you don't know anyone, someone will most likely introduce themselves to you. Berman Peter says after certain influences in her life, she's using Klestronica to search for the meaning of home. For me, a home means a place where you can feel safe. Berman Peter says she went to see Basia Schechter perform when she was 12. Schechter's a cantor and the lead singer of the Jewish world band Pharaoh's Daughter. Berman Peter says seeing Basia changed her outlook on the meaning of home. And all of a sudden we're immersed in Basia's music and surrounded by her and her warmth and she invited us to come and sing with her and participate in the concert. It showed me how Jewish underground music could be like stepping into a Jewish home. Schechter is now Berman Peters' mentor and collaborator. Making Klestronica is about creating the world that I want to see. So it's about creating a queer world and a non-hierarchical world and a world that embraces rave space and their history in black communities and their history of empowerment and self-expression. Since I was a kid, just wanted to build safe home for people. That's the music of Eleanor Vey, a klezmer musician and composer who performs at Klezstronica by singing and playing multiple instruments, including wooden flute and the hurdy-gurdy, a string instrument that makes noise through a hand crank. That's it in the background. She says klezmer has been significant for her since her time in France. The Jewish community where I grew up was almost inexistent. The stories that Vey has about her culture mostly pertain to her grandparents' resistance against the Nazi party in World War II and her mother's Israeli-French-Jewish family. But listening to klezmer felt different. What I loved about Klezmer is that it was voice of celebrations and party, and it was not like I heard story only about death and uh, deportation. It was like a hug. And when Vey was a teenager, Klezmer grew to mean much more. When I was 14, unfortunately, my uh, house uh, burned out. In front of the fire, I remember that feeling of, yeah, of loss and things, but also finding um, suddenly that home became people and music, and it really, there were no physical home anymore. We only had each other and music, the klezmer. For others, like Yael Horowitz, a Yiddish burlesque dancer, klezstronica is an aspect of a communal home she created for herself after feeling disconnected in her childhood. I grew up, quote-unquote, culturally Jewish. Um, I didn't feel like I necessarily had, like, a home Jewish community. And so, um, as an adult, I've been doing a lot of work to, like, search out and find Jewish communities that feel good and feel like spaces that I want to be in. This is the right place and the right time to be is um, a really powerful feeling for me. Berman Peters says she's ready for the next Klestronica rave. It's just been this thing that people commit to over and over again. Every time I go to Klestronica, I feel very emotional because it feels like a little slice of Messiah or of Utopia is coming true. The event will take place on October 26th at the Market Hotel in Brooklyn. This is Rachel Goldman reporting for Audiophiles.
Karaoke is a Japanese invention and has seen a steady rise in popularity in the U.S. since the 70s. On karaoke night at the neighborhood bar, it doesn't matter how well you sing, it's how you feel. Christopher Moore knows that perhaps as well as anybody. After all, karaoke saved his life. Reporter Kimberly Izar brings us his story. As soon as the chorus hit, the crowd erupted. It was crazy. It was, I never felt like that in my life. My name is DJ Moubert, also Christopher. And the name of my group, we are the Harmosexuals, as in the Harmonizing Homosexuals. I've been doing karaoke myself for the last two years. I've been singing since I was a child, but I never really got into it, and I guess until church. Church is what really, really got me into singing. A few years back, I was really, really depressed. And I had wanted to end my life. So I moved away from my hometown. I moved to Atlanta where I knew nobody else. And I told myself, I'm going to give life one more try. And if things don't work out, that's that. I was there for about six months. And I had a really bad night. And I said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. But I said, before I go, I'm going to go do something that I love to do. And that was singing. So I walked an hour and a half to find a bar. And I was like, okay, cool. I get out there. Yeah, they're doing karaoke. It's live band. So I was like, oh, that's a plus. Two, it was only metal songs. So I was like, okay, now I got to figure this out. But I was like, no, I'm here. I'm here. I made it here. I'm going to find something to sing. There's a song called I Believe in a Thing Called Love by The Darkness. I recommend you look it up. It's a great song. I got on that stage, and there's a sea full of people who don't look like me and I'm up there singing this song by a person who also does not look like me <laughs> and it was silence for the first verse as soon as the chorus hit the crowd erupted it was crazy it was I never felt like that in my life like being on the stage these lights at me and this whole crowd of people and I got off the stage and almost everybody I walked past hugged me and thanked me and said, that was great, that was beautiful, don't ever stop singing. And it was such a beautiful moment, like, I'm like, why could I ever want to give up on life when I have something like this? Like, it not only fulfilled me, but it also fulfilled all these people around me. Once I started doing karaoke, just like recreational, as a, for, like for a friend or for at a party, and people started coming up to me and they started saying, Chris, what you do at karaoke I'm not gonna get that everywhere I go. Like you make me feel so comfortable and so safe and so secure in this environment. And I'm like, that's what it makes me feel. So that's why I do what I do. That's why I wanna continue doing what I'm doing. was Christopher Moore from the karaoke group The Harmonizing Homosexuals. That piece was reported and produced by Kimberly Izar. From the Craig Newmark, 
Graduate School of Journalism. This is Audio Files. October is Filipino American History Month, which was created to commemorate the first Filipinos to arrive in America. New York has the third largest metropolitan population of Filipinos in the U.S., according to Pew Research Center data from 2019, with an estimated 50 to 70,000 living in Woodside. But as gentrification and housing shortage concerns loom, this population might be at risk of shrinking. Dr. Kevin Nadal has come onto the show today to speak with us about the significance of this month and the status of Filipino Americans in New York City. Dr. Kevin Adal is the president of the Filipino-American National Historical Society. He's one of the leading researchers of the psychological and physical impacts of microaggressions of people of color and those who identify as LGBTQ. He's an author having written 14 books, including several on these topics. And he's a professor at CUNY. Kevin, thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. So we're talking today because it's Filipino-American History Month. Yeah. What is the significance of this month? Sure. Uh, It's so important to recognize Filipino-American history in the U.S. because no one else does. If you open up any American textbook given to any student from K through 12 and even in college, um, that they are not getting any Filipino or Filipino-American history, which is so disappointing in general to be left out of a conversation, but is also irresponsible because Filipinos are so integral to American history. Could you tell me more about that? Why is that integral? Uh, The Philippines was colonized by the United States for close to 50 years, but most Americans don't even know that. Um, And the Philippines is forever changed because of the American colonization, for better or for worse. Um, And it's just something that isn't taught. And that's why the month was created by the Filipino American National Historical Society, Uncle Fred and Auntie Dorothy Cordova, um, for Filipinos to have a voice. So what brought Filipinos to New York? And is that different than other parts of the country? Yeah. So, you know, many Asian Americans came here as laborers uh, prior to the Asian Exclusion Act, um, and many Filipinos did as well, you know, immigrating through the West Coast. Um, But in New York, most of the Filipinos who came here actually came after the Philippine-American War um, when they joined the U.S. Navy and sailed all over the world and settled near the Brooklyn Navy Yards. So one of the oldest Filipino neighborhoods here uh, in New York is in Brooklyn, um, and it was first established around the 1910s, 1920s, uh, the oldest Filipino restaurant was called the Manila Carijan Restaurant. It was on Sand Street in Brooklyn. Um, And that's where Filipinos first were in the earlier part of that century. But most Filipinos today are descendants of folks who came after 1965. So in 1965, there was this Immigration and Naturalization Act, which put an end to these quotas of different countries coming to the U.S. And many Filipinos now in New York came as nurses, doctors, other professionals, and now there are multiple generations that have lived in New York as a result of that. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, So, you know, inflation has been rising for a while, which we know affects individual communities and ethnic groups differently. How has it affected Filipino Americans here in New York City? Yeah, you know, much like most communities who have been here for a very long time, rent costs and gentrification may result to them being uh, may result in them being pushed out. In fact, there are a lot of Filipinos who used to migrate to uh, Queens and specifically into Woodside, but even in places like Woodside, which used to be affordable, um, are no longer. And so now they're finding themselves moving either outside of the city altogether or even out of New York um, to other parts of the country. 
Is there anything the city could be doing to improve the lives of Filipinos in New York? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things that the city could do is to really pay attention to disaggregated data. Um, and what that means is that when you lump Asian Americans into one monolithic group, you miss out on a lot of the different opportunities to understand what different communities are going through. You know, I, I don't know the exact number, but I'm pretty sure that Asian Americans in New York City are up to 20% of the population or close to that at least. So that means one out of every five New Yorkers may be of Asian descent. Um, and within that, if you just presume that all those people have the same exact issues and problems or struggles, um, then you miss out on understanding what's happening. Can you give me an example? So if we didn't look at the disaggregated data, we wouldn't know that Filipino nurses were disproportionately affected by COVID. And so we need to do that with everything. We need to look at the education numbers. People tend to think that certain Asian groups are overrepresented in, for, for example, uh, higher education or even in some of the most competitive New York City schools. But if you look at those same New York City schools, uh, they're very uh, lowly populated with Filipinos. There might be a higher number of Chinese Americans or Indian Americans, um, but very few Filipinos at schools like Bronx Science or Stuyvesant or uh, Brooklyn Tech. Um, um, and that's something that happens all over the country. Mm. Well, looking at Filipinos as an individual group is something we definitely should be looking at. Dr. Kevin Adal is the president of the Filipino-American National Historical Society and is a professor, author, and researcher. Thanks for coming on to the show. Right, thank you for having me. Next, we go to one of the oldest bathhouses in the city, where an eclectic cohort of loyal patrons are grappling with the use of a space that is transformed as quickly as the neighborhood around it. Reporter Sophia Riddle has the story. In the four decades since Boris Tuberman and David Shapiro first bought the Russian and Turkish baths, there have always been designated hours for women to meander through the various saunas, steam rooms, and cold plunges without men. But when the baths reopened after a year-long pause during the pandemic, the current owners initially decided not to bring back women's only hours. I had never been before to any type of bathhouse. And we went the first time and it was co-ed. I didn't even know about women's hours or men's hours or any of that. That's Nerissa, who went to the baths for the first time seven years ago. She immediately recognized the health benefits of the hot rooms, but also swore to never go back during co-ed hours after what she described as an uncomfortable interaction with the men who were there. It was the most insane, bizarre, experience, um, not relaxing at all. And so I ended up going during a women's hours one time, and that completely changed my whole concept of what it was about. It was just a totally different vibe. Two years after men's only and co-ed hours returned, the Baths decided to offer three hours every other week for women only. But still, Nerissa hasn't been able to go back. The minor conflict gets to the heart of a complicated question for the bathhouse, a question that resonates with many culturally and historically significant places in the East Village. Who can make claim to a place that has an ever-changing population and very limited space and time? The Celebrity Wall is kind of like, it's random people who my brother wanted to take photos with. DeVito in the corner, uh, Yoko Ono, Puff Daddy. That's Dimitri Shapiro, son of one of the original owners, David Shapiro. Dimitri is showing me the photographs that cover an entire wall of the bathhouse lobby where we sit, highlighting the truly impressive range of celebrities who have patronized the baths over the years. 
uh, Roscoe from Sesame Street, JFK Jr. wearing one of our t-shirts from like the early 90s, my dad. If you sit here long enough, you will see people of every race, creed, color. Dimitri is right. An absurdly diverse range of people milled around us as we spoke, all wearing the matching green basketball shorts that the spa provides, moving in a serene, heat-induced stupor. Dimitri said that the decision to not bring back women's hours was practical. The guests we saw come and go were unrecognizable from the people who came to the bathhouse when Dimitri's father bought it almost 40 years ago. I remember as a child that this place kind of was frightening, scaring for me. It was kind of an old-school gentleman's club. We're like, you come here with your boys, you have a bunch of steaks, a bunch of things that are super unhealthy, drink vodka, and it was, it was like, it was fun and interesting. It's a part of New York that kind of really doesn't exist anymore. And those changes had a measurable impact on the demand for women's only hours. And so now our clientele is mostly like, in the same way the neighborhood, it's gotten a lot younger. It's, uh, I would say, mid-20s to 30s, young professionals, a lot of bros. The bygone era of steak and homemade vodka also gave way to another important demographic shift at the baths. Gay men, like, they kind of, like, carry the business in a lot of ways. It can be a very like sexually charged experience or it can be like just like really relaxing and therapeutic. That's Rai, who comes to the bathhouse almost weekly in the winters. He sits in the hot rooms after therapy as a way to detox. It's almost like the only bathhouse where men can be naked together in New York City. That was not always the case. In the 90s, the Russian and Turkish bathhouse was one of the only places of its kind in the entire city, according to Dimitri's account and from reporting from around that time. The government had shut down most other bathhouses in the 80s in a desperate and unscientific attempt to curb the AIDS epidemic. At the time, the Russian and Turkish bathhouse was spared, and Dimitri believes that was because it appealed to mostly older and straighter men and women, which separated it from the bathhouses around the country that were well-known gathering spots for gay men. Today, things are different. I remember, like, I met these two guys at the baths, like, one of the first times I went there, and then I, like, went home with them. And me and this guy, who's now, like, a friend of mine, he was getting dressed, and he dressed like like a dapper, like a dandy, almost. Um, like, it was, his outfit was just very wild and different, and I was like, wow, I never would have, like, talked to you if I... It hadn't met you naked. The nuanced and ever-transforming crowd at the baths isn't much consolation for Nerissa and the other old-school, women's-only devotees who have had to make way for a new cohort of East Village bathers. But the adjusted bathhouse hours seem to be another byproduct of the constant transformation that almost every cultural institution has had to grapple with in the neighborhood. That's the appeal of the place, that we treat everybody the same, so that no matter who you are, you're going to enjoy this place. For Audiophiles, I'm Safia Riddle. New York City's Sanitation Department is enforcing new regulations for both businesses and residents to combat the ongoing rat problem. According to a report put out last August, there are now 3 million rats in New York, which they say is a 50% increase since 2010. Freelance reporter Austin Cope looked at how these new regulations impact businesses for NPR. He joins us now to talk about his reporting, as well as how new regulations will take effect next spring. Austin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Amanda. 
So in your reporting, you give us some great trash stats. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about the trash problem in New York City? Yeah. So uh, New Yorkers produce around 44 million pounds of trash each day. Uh, a lot of that goes on to city sidewalks for pickup since a sanitation strike happened in the late 60s. That's kind of normal in New York. You go, you walk around New York, you see trash bags out on the sidewalks. It's almost hard to really even notice them, um, but they're there. <laughs> they are. And it sounds like you were getting up close and personal with these rats while you're reporting. Yeah. So there, there's rats. Um, I actually learned that they chew through the bags and hang out inside. Um, I didn't witness them like inside the bag. I wasn't. I learned this from somebody who was actually picking them up. I'll talk about that more soon. But um, hanging like they're hanging out inside and, and I saw some running back and forth between these trash bags and managed to get some audio of that uh, as I was collecting other interviews. So what businesses are these new regulations affecting? Okay, so the, this is this is part of the uh, New York City mayor's offices. They're, they're using this as sort of a way to have this war on rats. Um, and so they have rolled out regulations that affect all food-related businesses. This happened in August. Um, then those ex those regulations extended to all businesses, or rather, all chain businesses in September. And then, um, starting in March of next year, it's going to go to all businesses. So any business in New York is eventually going to have to put all of its trash into a container. So how is New York actually enforcing these regulations for businesses? Okay, so that's that's an open. I mean, they are they have started in working on uh, several. Um, they had a warning period starting in August, and then in starting in September, they started issuing citations for food-related businesses. They're doing the same thing. They have done the same thing for um, chain businesses starting in September. Another thing that's interesting that they're doing is they're 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 shaming businesses on social media. Um, and so, for example, um, the sanitation department posted on their Twitter page or web X page, I guess, um, last uh, I think it was in September. They said. They called out the Ralph Lauren store in Midtown, and they said that um, you, you you should do better because they had put their they'd put this whole pile of trash bags out before the pickup time. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's one way to 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 make sure they're actually adhering to these rules. Yeah, right, right. So for your piece for NPR, I mean, you really went th out there. You mentioned the rats. You saw the rats. Mm -hmm. um, and w was there anything interesting that you got that didn't make it into the final piece? Yeah, so uh, one of the cool things that I did was went on a, a ride along with a, a private carting company in Queens. Uh, now these companies are the ones that are only allowed to pick up trash from uh, private resident, or rather from businesses. Sanitation department deals with trash for private residents, so there's a, se a separation there. So I talked to a truck driver, um, and he is used to picking up the trash bags and and finding rats in them. However, he said that since there have been more bins on his route, uh, he's seen 60 or 70 percent fewer, um, which was pretty impressive. However, um, we went behind the trash, the trash truck. Um, it was pouring rain. And I was expecting to see a lot of bins on the route, but actually didn't. We stopped at you know 15 or 20 different businesses, and only one of them was actually putting their waste in bins. Uh, so I, I thought that was interesting. It's like there, and this was this of course was in early September, so the regulations had just started being enforced. I don't know if we were to go now, you know, in the middle of this month, how that would look now. Mm, that's interesting, you know. It, so it sounds like some of these things are really hard to enforce, but the city is making an effort. Yes, yeah, they are, and it's going to continue to ramp up. The sanitation commissioner um, and the mayor have both said that they're very committed to this. 
Now, there was a pilot program implemented recently that you reported on to, st- to test out new trash containers. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So they're the the they've started in a couple neighborhoods. Um, the one I went to was West Harlem, um, and I went and saw. And I actually I live in that area as well. So there's trash containers that are being rolled out, and they're putting them into the the streets. Um, some are in front of schools, and some are just on neighborhood blocks. And those containers are. Um, taking up parking. And one of the community board members um, that I spoke to, is the leader of the community board, said that this was a concern for him because each one takes four or five parking spaces. Now, of course, the sanitation commissioner says it's going to have to be either the, the rats or the parking. Um, and there, there will be some sacrifices. And they're hoping to find a balance, of course, but that's not always um, – That's the, they, they will really hope to have more containerization. So it sounds just like new habits that people are going to be having to build. Uh, right, Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming to speak with us on the show today. Thanks, Amanda. Austin Cope is a freelance reporter and audio journalist based in New York City. He's also a recent alum of the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. To follow his work, you can find him on Instagram at, at Austin Can Cope. That's A-U-S-T-I-N-C-A-N-C-O-P-E. That's our show for today. Thanks for tuning into Audio Files. I'm your host, Amanda Carey McHugh. This show was produced by Aaliyah Fisher. Christian Azario is the associate producer. Our managing editor is Ashley Reed. Reporters for this episode were Rachel Goldman, Kimberly Izar, Alex Krails, Safia Riddle, and Sajina Saresta. Our editors are Maggie Freeling and Richard Yeh. Our sound engineers are Amber Watson and Chad Bernhard. This episode featured music by Monsplayer, Jason Shaw, Benjamin Tissot, Haya Berman-Peters, and Eleanor Vey. Thank you to our guests, Austin Cope, Sarah Luft, Dr. Kevin Nadal, and Samantha Maldonado. You can listen to more episodes of Audio Files on audiophilespodcast.com. Audio